You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening depending on where you're viewing this live stream. My name is Mike Yaffe, and I'm the Vice President of the Middle East North Africa Center here at U.S. Institute of Peace. And I have the pleasure of welcoming you to today's discussion on the current situation and future of Iraq's minorities communities. We are pleased to be able to live stream today's event in both English and Arabic. We would also like to express our deep gratitude to the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor for the continual partnership and support of USIP's efforts in the regions. And with that, I would like to introduce you and welcome you to uh, three panelists who will be speaking today. Our first panelist would be Adid Yusuf, who is representing the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities and is joining us today from Iraq. Nagina Sawaz is, represents the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and who will be joining us today from Washington. And as I said, we're grateful to the long partnerships that we've had with the Alliance and with DRL in supporting minority communities in Iraq. And I'd also like to give a warm welcome to my colleague from USIP, Asama Gurazi, who is now joining us from Lebanon. USIP has been engaged in Iraq uninterrupted since 2003. The Institute continues to work with partners to forge agreements between local communities and reduce communal tensions, prevent violence, and support the safe and voluntary return for displaced Iraqis. The Institute's reconciliation agreements in Tikrit, Hawaja, and Talafa are a few of the examples of the joint successes that we have achieved with our Iraqi partners. We are especially focused on supporting religious and ethnic minority communities as they recover from the devastation left behind by ISIS. At USIP, supporting Iraqi communities, Christian, Yazidis, Shabak, and others has been a priority for over a decade, and particularly the last six years as they recover from the genocide and devastation left behind by ISIS. Today, we're working in Nineveh, Ambar, and Basra provinces in the province in the south to support communities affected by violence and to seek and heal and facilitate the safe and voluntary return home of hundreds of thousands who have been displaced, while we also seek to advance security and the rule of law. We also produce an important tool, the U.S. Institute of Peace Conflict and Stabilization, Conflict and Stabilization Monitoring Framework through which we are able to continue to collect data directly from everyday Iraqis living in conflict-afflicted communities in Nineveh province, in areas such as Hamnadinia, Sinjar, and Talafer, to inform policymakers and programs, promote social cohesion, and, and uh, mitigate violent conflict. We know that more work lies ahead in Iraq. With camp, disclosures, with camp closures occurring in recent months across Iraq, ensuring the safety and sustainability of the return and reintegration of displaced persons, including ethnic and religious minorities, is more than ever crucial. 
Iraq is also preparing for critical national elections in October as it deals with intersecting economic, political, and public health challenges, the consequences of which are falling heavily on the country and the country's minorities. These are among the central issues we'll be exploring today, and I very much look forward to a thoughtful, productive, and constructive conversation with the panelists. And with that, allow me to turn things over to our Director of Middle East Programs, Sarhang Hamasaid, who will introduce and moderate today's conversation with the panelists. Thank you, and over to you, Sarham. Thank you, Mike, for your remarks and your thoughtful insights. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, depending on where you are. My name is Sarham Hamasaid. I'm Director of Middle East Programs here at uh, USIP. It's an honor for me to moderate the discussion with our distinguished panelists uh, today. Uh, we invite our audience to take part in this event by asking questions through the uh, questions and answers box under the live stream on the USIP event page um, and also on the live stream uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can also engage with us and each other on Twitter with the hashtag uh, IraqCSMF. My colleagues um, will collect and send your questions to me and I'll do my best uh, to answer as many uh, of them as possible. For our discussion, uh, we have three excellent speakers, um, and I'll say a little bit more um, uh, uh, about them. Adad, Mr. Adad Youssef, uh, is the chairman of the board of directors of the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities. He's a long-standing civil society leader advocating on behalf of Iraqi minorities, advancing uh, minorities and human rights, and working on elections. Adad is joining us from Iraq, as Mike said, and he will speak in Arabic. So our English um, speakers will uh, hear what he has to say uh, through the interpreters. We also have uh, Ms. Nigina Sawes, uh, who's a team lead in the Office of Global Programs at the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, uh, commonly known as DRL, in the US State Department. Uh, she oversees the development and funding of human rights, democracy, and labor programs in the Middle East and North Africa region, ensuring the programs implemented in partnership with civil society actors advance the State Department's policy goals. Uh, prior to her government service, she worked and lived in the Middle East to promote and protect human rights and fundamental freedoms. Nagina has extensive Iraq knowledge and experience. I'm really glad that she agreed to join us today in her first public engagement, hopefully the beginning of many to come. And we are also joined um, uh, by uh, Mr. Osama Garizi, uh, USIP's Senior Program Advisor for Iraq. Osama served as USIP's Regional Program Manager uh, prior to his current role, and he was focused on Iraq and Syria from July 2015 uh, to October 2018. And he has an ex extensive hands-on experience designing, managing, and leading learning efforts around reconciliation and dialogue processes in Iraq and Syria in the post-ISIS uh, uh, period. He has also spearheaded the development of USIP's conflict and stabilization monitoring framework uh, for the you know, province, uh, the findings of which we will discuss uh, today. So as Mike noted, uh, USIP has worked with ethnic and religious minorities and their different projects for over a decade now. Our work with them has been uninterrupted. A main component of our work overall, as well as with Iraq's minorities, is connecting our local work with data and analysis to inform policy in Washington, 
Iraq and the international community. And we hope that today's conversation is one of those opportunities. The conflict, uh, stabili conflict and Stabilization Monitoring Framework, or CSMF, as we uh, often call it, is one of several ways we learn about the issues on the ground and share it. We often hear from government, political, religious, and civil society leaders, all important stakeholders. With the CSMF, we hear directly from the conflict-affected communities and minorities in Nineveh province to understand their assessment of what's happening in their areas. We're having this conversation as we mark the anniversary of the tragic advances uh, of ISIS in June of 2014. Uh, three and a half years after the military defeat of ISIS in Iraq, three months after the historic visit of the Pope to Iraq, and uh, also as the country prepares for important national elections just short of four months uh, from now. We'll first hear from Osama, uh, some key findings from the data, then hear from Adad uh, as a civil society leader. Then we hear from Nagina about some of the US government efforts through DRL and her own analysis as an expert on Iraq issues. So first, Osama, can you please uh, tell our audience briefly, what is the conflict, conflict and stabilization monitoring framework? Yeah, thanks, so, Rahang. Um, uh, the Conflict and Civilization Monitoring Framework uh, was established uh, uh, by USIP, uh, but in uh, 2016 uh, with support from DRL. Um, and it was really meant to fill a gap, uh, but we noticed there to be a gap in, in uh, research efforts in, uh, at the time. Uh, there was a lot of qualitative data coming in, a lot of rapid assessments, rapid research qualitative research being done. Um, but when we took a step back to understand, um, are things getting better in the conflict environment? There weren't efforts to, to uh, there weren't systemic longitudinal efforts to, uh, uh, to do so, uh, to give us a better understanding if the conflict environment is getting better or if it's getting worse and why. Um, so we went ahead and designed um, the conflict and stabilization monitoring framework utilizing uh, USIP's uh, measuring Progress in Conflict Environments Framework, um, adapting it to Iraq. And it's, it's a framework consisting of now over 90 indicators uh, looking at um, themes around rule of law, governance, uh, livelihoods, uh, reconciliation. Um, and uh, the value added of this framework is that it is community perceptions. So these are community, how communities actually feel about these issues um, and the various indicators tied to them. Thank you, Sam. And it's important to note that really it's providing rich information about areas of governance, security, social uh, cohesion, reconciliation, the well-being of the people. So it's really, really rich. So um, uh, let's dive in. Uh, three years, um, three, three and a half years after the military defeat of ISIS uh, in Iraq, uh, what does the CSMF data tell us about security from the perspective of the people? And, um, uh, and if you can uh, also, when, as you give our answers, if you can speak to uh, how women in particular view these issues, if there's different, that would be great. Yeah, thanks, Aram. Um, so from this is, we've done four rounds of, of data collection in the, the Conflict and Stabilization Monitoring Framework. And from round one, uh, which was conducted over three years ago, to round four, uh, which was uh, last uh, conducted in October of November of last year. Um, there's been a positive trend with regard to security. 
So that is the majority of residents in the districts that we're looking at. And there are three districts in particular that are covered by the framework, Hamdani district, Dalafa district, and Sinjar district. In all three districts, uh, the majority of residents have felt safer over the course of uh, the last three years, um, where the, the latest round four findings show that uh, communities, uh, the majority of communities in each district feel safe, feel secure, um, but that's uh, not to say that they still don't have concerns about security. Um, and these concerns can be broken down into four groups. So first, uh, there are concerns about the security arrangement or configuration in the three districts looked at by some communities. For example, in Sinjar, half of the Azidis in the district would like to change the existing security configuration in order for them to feel safer. Uh, this is true of uh, the, the Kurdish community in, um, in Dalafar as well. Um, and so in Sinjar, this relates to the highly complex security environment in the district uh, that sees it have a multiplicity of security actors. And we're all familiar with the, uh, the, the highly fluid security environment in Sinjar. Um, indeed, as noted by the, the conflict and stabilization monitoring framework, uh, Sinjar residents, more so than other residents in the other districts, um, are extremely concerned that clashes between the different security actors in the district will occur. So this, again, points to the security configuration or the lack of a structured security configuration in, in Sinjar. Um, second, and it's related to the first, uh, is that there are concerns about security actor behavior in the existing security arrangements or configurations in each of the districts. So some communities feel that these security actors are not working in the interests of all residents and that some are purposely targeting um, or marginalizing uh, some communities. So there's a concern about behavior. Third, there are concerns that security actors have too much power and influence on the administration and governance in their districts or sub-districts. Um, and uh, this is especially true of uh, the Christian community in Hamdani and the Turkmen communities, be they uh, from the, the Sunni community or from the Shia community in Dalafur. Um, and then last, uh, lastly, there's, there's a, there exists a concern uh, that, um, that security, security concerns are no longer about ISIS. Um, across the three districts, uh, unemployment uh, and the lack of, uh, of, of, uh, of employment is ranked as the biggest threat to safety by communities, uh, more so than a resurgence of ISIS, more so than other uh, risks that they're experiencing. This was true of the three districts. So these economic fears tie in directly with security in another way uh, that we've captured in the, in the data. Um, and that's the majority of residents in Sinjar and Dalafud and a near majority in Hamdani uh, believe people, uh, residents uh, in their communities uh, join security actors because of economic need and necessity. So again, uh, the general trend is security is better, but communities still have security concerns as, uh, as I outlined. Thank you, um, Osama. So anything here to point out uh, in terms of the, if there are specific issues that affect women in particular or if their views and assessments are different? Yeah, so there weren't a real, when it came to security, there weren't a lot of uh, discrepancies between how uh, men and women viewed security. Uh, in some uh, communities, security actors were, were not, uh, were viewed in more positive terms by women, um, uh, but uh, across the board, there weren't really in, any, any variations between the two groups. 
Okay, thank you, Osama. So, on uh, the conflict um, with ISIS and conflict over all ripped communities apart, and in uh, in many cases turned them against each other. Uh, this in itself um, uh, became a barrier to return of many uh, people. Uh, what does that data tell us about coexistence in Nineveh uh, and matters of justice and reconciliation uh, as the people see them? Yeah, thanks, Arang. Um, communities, the, from the data, uh, we, we look, um, there are a number of indicators that are looking at re reconciliation, coexistence, so social cohesion uh, views. Um, the general trend is that communities feel reconciliation is needed. So when I say communities, we're talking about Christians, Shabak, uh, the Turkmen. Um, uh, we're looking at uh, the Sunni Arab communities, uh, the Yazidi communities um, in, in the three uh, districts that I mentioned. All these communities feel that reconciliation is needed. That's true. Um, but where there's variation is that not all communities feel reconciliation is feasible or possible. Um, so digging deeper on this, if we look at Hamdani district, uh, those that are more pessimistic about the prospects for reconciliation, I mean, really when we look at Hamdani, we know about the tensions between the, the, the Christian community and the Shabak community. So the Christian community, particularly those living in Bartala uh, sub-district, um, they are much more pessimistic about achieving reconciliation than, uh, than Christians in Hamdani uh, center or Karakosh. And um, uh, then um, the, the, the Shabbat community, who the Shabbat community feels more so than the, the, the Christian community that reconciliation is, is possible. Now, these the differences are largely related to uh, the, the power dynamics in the district, uh, the shifting uh, demographic and, and power uh, dynamics in the district. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, this has also caused there to be some challenges to reconciliation. Um, so on this, uh, there's a sizable segment of the Christian community that does not believe compromises should be made in order to achieve reconciliation, um, which is another uh, impediment to, to moving forward on it. Now, on a positive note, uh, the, the data from the CSMF does show that both the, the Christian community and the Shabbat community not only feel a need for reconciliation, but they want reconciliation. Um, and that each side recognizes the victimization of the other community. So these are really big steps that um, uh, weren't from, from round one to round four, uh, some of these things did not show up. So we've seen a, a shift towards perceptions about victimization of the other uh, peer. So there's an acknowledgement. And in terms of what issues are linked to reconciliation, residents in all three uh, districts uh, rank the crimes committed by ISIS as the, the, the first thing that should be on the table when discussing reconciliation. Um, these things differ then uh, beyond uh, ISIS crimes looking at when you look at the districts themselves, they, so they all have their own dynamics and idiosyncrasies. Um, and so uh, if we look at Talafat, for example, in the sub-district in Talafat called Zumar, which is a disputed territory, um, issues related to the disputed status come up um, in the data um, on what issues should be tied to reconciliation between the Arab community and the, the Kurdish community in, in Zumar. Um, and obviously uh, in Hamdani as well, you, uh, beyond ISIS crimes, issues related to housing um, and administration, political participation, which are known to, to be uh, creating tensions between the communities are issues that um, are both sides know need to be discussed. Another positive um, in terms of the agreement is that um, 
across the three districts, there is a common challenge identified to reconciliation occurring. Um, communities believe that there's a lack of political will um, and that that is the main impediment to reconciliation. And you know, this, is, this reflects what we hear from communities outside of the data set, uh, interacting with them through different dialogue processes um, and other types of initiatives is uh, communities, uh, particularly the uh, ethnic and religious minority communities feel that they've lost political agency, uh, that their, their political rep representatives do not really reflect the, um, the interests of their, uh, their communities, but instead they're, they're beholden to the interests of larger political uh, parties who, who uh, dominate the political space in those areas. Um, thank you, Osama. Clearly, um, uh, I think the, it's good to, to see the areas of progress where people feel better about security, where people recognize the need for reconciliation and they want it. But it's also clear that uh, there are uh, unique characteristics to each location issue that requires when interventions are made uh, that you take those nuances into consideration to, um, uh, um, uh, to achieve success. Uh, I'll come back to you uh, with more questions about the data, uh, but let me move to Adad now. Um, uh, Adad, can you tell our viewers what is the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities and what are some of the key issues that you work on? Thank you very much. Sahang, and uh, I would like to thank the USIP for allowing us or giving us this opportunity. The Alliance of Iraqi Minorities and is an alliance between civil society organizations that work on creating a unified front among uh, minorities uh, and their issues and to defend these uh, issues. We uh, work through peaceful uh, means. We were established in Baghdad in 2010 after a series of uh, meetings between a number of Iraqi minorities and under the sponsorship of the USIP. We created the alliance. We now have 23 members uh, and uh, 63 individuals, university professors, ex-parliament uh, ex members, uh, human rights activists, uh, minorities activists. We give them honorary membership and a consultative capacity in the alliance. We also have colleagues from the uh, from all minorities that. The Christians, Shabak, Kakai, Turkmen, Baha'i, uh, Armenians, Sharkasians, and the Gypsies, and those with a darker skin tone. We work in all parts of Iraq on strengthening the rights of Iraqi minorities in a manner that would guarantee the respect of the rights and interests through campaigns, uh, supportive campaigns, and through monitoring violations and defending the rights of uh, Iraqi minorities and protecting them and we work on maintaining the privacy of the and, and the private nature and characteristic of the minorities and to keep and maintain their presence their presence and to preserve their heritage their uh, heritage and presence in Iraq now we are negotiating with the uh, Nineveh protection units in order to find a solution to have 
have stability in the area and defend and protect the rights of all uh, the minorities in the area. We also work on protecting the constitutional uh, rights and guarantees and uh, for all religions and for all religions and languages of the minorities. We also work on building relationships with all the stakeholders to protect the political, ethnical and uh, religious rights of my own minorities. We also work on developing the areas where minorities live to ensure equality and justice and to en enable the minorities to have an influence and impact over the things that uh, over the things that affect them in their areas of uh, of residence we have worked since 2019 and we are still working on um, on the partnership budget supported by the USIP, we have worked with the municipal councils in the five areas that we have chosen and with uh, Ninawa and with the Ministry of Planning and the Parliament and the uh, Government Secretariat. I think, uh, the work of the Alliance is a good example of uh, the agency of uh, the minority communities themselves and uh, the civil society uh, representing organizations and individuals. So, Adad, um, how do you assess the current situation of the Iraqi minorities in Iraq? And what are the key challenges that they face from your perspective? Well, when we talk about the situation of minorities in Iraq, we have to categorize them to three groups. The first one is the protection of present identity, second, equality and indiscrimination, third, active participation, including political participation. And these are points that the alliance focused on since its establishment. All Iraqis after the fall of the regime in 2000 and three were optimistic, especially after the suffering they have endured and the displacement and marginalization. They were optimistic that the new Iraq will give them, will be a new haven for them where they will not be discriminated against. But unfortunately, what happened was the opposite because some of the minorities have become threatened. Their presence uh, became uh, threatened and it was clear that they will only stay in Iraq for a time. For example, we had more than a million and a half Christians before 2003 and now in Iraq we only <coughs> We only have we only have 300,000 Christians, although we do not have official statistics, they are still uh, leaving Iraq and immigrating outside of Iraq. The Sabia also, 90% of them have left Iraq. We have less than 4,000 uh, members of this minority. And although they uh, were the majority in some of the districts, now they have uh, vanished completely from uh, these districts. The same applies to the Yazidis, especially when the doors of immigration have been opened to them to Europe. We are trying to draw the attention of the world to this uh, problem and this threat, which is not, which is irreversible, irreversible. What we see is that there is more pressure on the minorities to uproot them from uh, their historical land as a result of the international conflict and the uh, wars that are happening in Iraq. What is happening in Upper Bilwar in Dohuk, a governorate on the Turkish borders. The Turkish government is um, 
as harassing the PKK and the, some of the, and they are bombing the areas. And uh, there, the most recent was yesterday, the most recent attack was yesterday. And the residents who are mostly Assyrians are having to be, are being displaced. The same uh, goes, applies for Sinjar. We have a heavy presence of PKK in that area. And we have more than one uh, security actor active there. And this uh, strips the area out of stability and this drives the residents to leave the area and to succumb to the uh, attraction of immigration. That is why in the alliance we work with the USIP and we are trying to work with other stakeholders to provide or to ensure that there is a, um, a stable environment that would attract the minorities back. Of course, we cannot forget about the role of ISIS that has uh, persecuted minorities in some of the areas and they destroyed their livelihoods and their presence and despite the efforts uh, efforts exerted by the by several international organizations and although some success have been achieved in uh, some areas like Alhamdania but there were discouraging results uh, in areas like Turkey for example there are several uh, factors like econo uh, economic ones and other ones in Nineveh for example the uh, intensive presence of security agencies uh, intimidates the minorities and the Christians. Therefore, we need to exert more effort to uh, close the uh, refugee camps and bring the people back to their uh, to their homes. Also, there is discrimination on the basis of ethnicity and color and religion in Iraq. And in our alliance, we monitor and record uh, numerous incidents of uh, discrimination, especially against the gypsies and people with dark toned skins. And also there is denial of uh, denial of some uh, religions like the Ka'ais and the Zaradists, and they are considered as Muslims, although they are not even in the, uh, the, the law in Iraq bans the Baha'i activity and it restricts any activity that is done for the Baha'i or organized by the Baha'i uh, sect. Also, there is a hatred. <clears throat> The, and there is obvious hatred against Christians and Jews, especially in their, uh, especially in their feasts and celebrations. Also, uh, unattended minors are automatically considered to be Muslims. Now we are working on drafting a new law about that, and we are receiving support from the USIP, and we are working on promoting the uh, culture and geography and religion of religious, and we are trying to eliminate hate speech in cooperation with the Ministry of Education and uh, the region of Kurdistan, and we are trying to promote and uh, promote the minorities and coexistence despite of the difference. In our opinion, these steps are very slow in Baghdad, and we need the support of the international society uh, to help the Iraqi government to take uh, a brave and quick steps to support this. Although the although human rights and religious rights is considered to be very distinguished and special in uh, Kurdistan because they recognize all religious minorities and they are all represented in the Ministry of Religious and they are all allowed to practice their rituals. However, 
the conflict over the uh, lands of Christians is something that the Kurdistan government should address and take serious action because uh, international support is required to identify these problems, especially in cases where court orders have been issued, but they were not implemented yet. The participation of minorities in, in politics is support is an, a major indicator in Iraq, especially that it is a it is a plural and uh, uh, country. I mentioned here, for example, the federal court and the parliament as a judicial uh, power. However, the minorities are not represented in the parliament, although there is one Christian member, and although the federal court has ruled that the Yazidis should be represented in the parliament, but they are not. The new elections law will not ensure fair representation for the minorities in the parliament. Thank you, thank you, Adad. Um, uh, I really appreciate the three categories of efforts that you mentioned, the need, uh, protection of minorities' existence and their identity, uh, equality and non-discrimination and political participation and the, um, the, the key examples that you gave. And uh, I think it was a good complementarity between what you said and what Osama said based uh, on the data. And I'm glad that you also mentioned your efforts at the national level and uh, uh, as um, yeah, uh, people globally uh, talk about matters of race um, and talking about the dark-skinned Iraqis is uh, and, and their plight in Iraq is an important one. So uh, it is good that the coalition is, uh, the alliance is representing the diversity of the Iraqi minorities, even when uh, there are legal barriers to their representation and education uh, about them. So um, let me move to um, our third speaker and um, uh, Nagina. Uh, for more than a decade, uh, your office has supported Iraqi minorities uh, in Iraq, uh, basically. What is DRL's approach to support Iraqi minorities and how do you translate it uh, into action in Iraq? Um, what has been some of your priorities? I ask that uh, understanding uh, that there are uh, specifics of the work uh, for the safety of the people involved uh, may not be shared. And I also saying that recognizing uh, that uh, you are here with us in an official capacity um, uh, with DRL, but also uh, and as an Iraq expert. So I hope that we will be able to, uh, 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 to hear from you, your expertise later on on some of the matters, but we, if we focus here on um, DRL's work. Thanks, Sarhan. Um, good morning and, and good afternoon to everyone. And thanks for allowing me to be part of this really rich discussion. Um, I think to answer your immediate question about where we in DRL have been working on um, the issues of minorities, I think we can we can go back and we can start with just um, the basic uh, understanding that the issues of the minority communities within Iraq can never exist in a vacuum. This is, uh, it's not a subject that we can just say we will focus only on these communities uh, in isolation, that in order to be able to ensure that they have all of those elements that Adad outlined that are our priorities of the alliance, that those cannot happen without the full participation and focus on the broader society as well. So all of the work that we attempt to support uh, within Iraq to ensure that those communities can 
not only survive but thrive as active citizens and participants in their country is really on two parallel tracks, both addressing those immediate needs that they have as individual communities and as a collective of component communities that are facing very similar issues, but from different perspectives as it affects each of them. And then also ensuring that we're having that connection back to their, their place, both in their regional geography as well as on the national level. Because if we continue to just focus in on the very small micro um, uh, community level, Level without connecting that back to these larger issues that are happening at the national level, um, neither side will be able to succeed. So it's always with the eye of being able to address both the immediate uh, impact of what's happening to religious and ethnic components and then also their place within the broader system. Uh, it's it's almost like pulling at a string when when we you know address one issue that comes against one community. It's never happening in isolation. It's always happening both to uh, other communities and within the broader reach. It's just the impact and how it affects the the different parts are are often more severe when you have a more um, marginalized group um, or one that has been under you know these mass migrations that Adad outlined, and then also the active conflicts as well as already having lower participation. So all of it has to be incorporated and built on each other in order for there to be success. Thank you. So in terms of translating that into action, is that because you did not feel comfortable going there? Or? No, no, not at all. Just I, I forgot the second half of your question. So a lot of that work um, and the majority of that work, it is, again, happening always on two levels. Um, we have the work that our, our colleagues in the embassy and in the department are, are working on the national level at the diplomacy side, ensuring that these perspectives are included in their engagement with their counterparts in the Iraqi government, in the Kurdistan regional government, but then also uh, being able to feed that work into our support to civil society organizations. They are, they are the ones that have that access and that ability to engage with their communities directly. There's, there's a difference, and I think going back to you know, Osama laying the groundwork and the context in which we're working, we're talking about you know, in the moment, uh, the CSMF was was developed in 2016. That's well two years after the initial ISIS incursion. But that's not the beginning of the story for where minorities issues were happening, where Iraqi components started to, I mean, even addressing the language around how we reference these communities, minorities versus components, uh, talking about them as religious versus ethnic minorities, where their, their uh, stake lies in geographic discussions. None of this is new, um, but all of this kind of came to the forefront after the incursion of ISIS. And um, one of the things that we do have to be mindful of is that over time, that has led to the these smaller circles of trust are a little bit more difficult to access, particularly when we're talking about these continuing cycles of instability. So it's not possible for us to say that we can support that work unless we're directly working with those organizations that represent their communities, um, unless we are connecting those back to those larger political discussions and ensuring that when we're talking about any of these broader issues, we are also ensuring connecting what that community level perspective and the impact of some of those decisions is going back in a feedback loop. You know, where where we're able to support 
projects that allow for that analysis, that assessment, that progress at the community level. It doesn't just end with this project is done, we're happy. We have to then take the impact of that project, the results, and feed it back into the larger objectives that we're trying to achieve. Otherwise, we're we're having quite a um, we're putting ourselves in a situation where we're not feeding the the broader progress, and that would just bring us right back to where we were. I, I would say prior to two thousand fourteen, even. Uh, thank you, thank you, Nagina, and thank you for pointing out um, uh, the word choice uh, in Iraq uh, component. Uh, versus minorities, uh, and, and for those um, uh, who are listening to us in English and um, uh, they, they're not familiar, uh, in Iraq, the word choice for the, the word minorities is not, uh, it's usually not preferred to use because it could suggest a status where you're inferior uh, to another community and the minorities, as they uh, have been flagging that as an issue. It's not a minority in terms of numbers, but also in terms of your status and how you're treated and you're, you're represented. Uh, so they use the word uh, uh, component, uh, I know it's a little bit awkward in English, but that's if it comes up in this conversation, that's what, uh, what we mean. Um, so uh, Nagina, if I may ask you, uh, as you look at the data and from your uh, uh, years of work on Iraq, mm -hmm. um, so uh, Two pieces of a question. You answered some of my second question, but um, just put it back to you if you have other additional thoughts on that. Uh, what uh, findings and trends uh, in the CSMF data stood out to you? And uh, the other piece to my question is that how do these relate to um, what you see in the rest of the country, especially um, in light of the public demands um, uh, in the middle and the south, uh, south of the country? And so as I do that, before I get your answer, just to remind that uh, uh, to help our interpreters, we do not speak too fast. I hope we have slowed down enough uh, uh, for them and to encourage everybody who are watching us online to uh, send their questions um, uh, via the chat box um, uh, uh, under the live stream on the USIP website or on uh, Facebook. And uh, I know some have started to kick in and I'll uh, go get to them uh, after uh, this round. Nagina. Uh, uh, I promise to try to slow down, but this is this is a, a Herculean task for me, so I'll do my best. Um, I think one of the most interesting facets of the the framework and where we've seen, I'll, I'll answer in two parts. I think first, this is the fourth wave of data that we've received. Um, it's been um, over many iterations of uh, collecting an analysis, analysis of the data on the part of USIP. Um, on, the, on the positive side, I think what we've seen is that there is progress, um, particularly in some of the more recent data collected. I think what, what frequently happens is that, um, as I said, these are longstanding issues and the situation has gotten so bad that we forget to see that the, in some cases there, there can be progress and it can be incremental and it can be uh, difficult to measure, but in some cases that does exist. But what is even more striking and what I, I hope people will take um, away from both this discussion and really I, I encourage you to take some time and look at the framework on USIP's website. It's an excellent tool, uh, both in usability and in and sheer information and analysis that the USIP team has put into it. 
Um, I think what, what is really remarkable is none of this is a surprise and none of this should be unique to any single community. And if we can normalize understanding that there are there's a, a spectrum of where these issues have impact and where these responses are very common, I think that can begin a lot of that process that, again, Osama talked about on the need for reconciliation, but some of that difficulty on how to approach it. Um, the commonality of some of the contributing factors to, to that feeling of instability. Um, unemployment and livelihoods are issues across the country. Um, a feeling that security is not is not a constant is common across the country. Again, do do the the component and religious and ethnic minority communities do they feel them more with greater impact and more strongly in some situations? Absolutely, and that's extremely valid and has to be addressed again in one of the the two parallel tracks that we talked about. But it it is part of the the greater and um, uniting uh, assessment and feeling within the country that these these are issues that affect everyone. Um, and because of that, I think we've seen this really um, public and consistent movement to say that across the board, we we are not happy with corruption. We are not happy with how this affects our livelihoods. We are not happy with what what is happening in the environment around us. Uh, and, and we are not seeing this translated even into that security that we would need to be able to address some of these ourselves. So for me, I think that is the most remarkable part of, of the, the data and the framework and the analysis that we've seen is that it really highlights and underscores that there, there are so much of these commonalities. And then again, back to the mission of the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities, I think that part of, of what's so important about their work is that in the, the budgeting process, in the participatory budget planning, it's intended to say that this is happening at our district or our provincial level, feeding into the national level. And as part of those communities, we do want to highlight our specific interests. So again, you can't let either side fall to, to one side or the other. Um, and it really is about addressing those broader issues, but, but with that understanding that it is sometimes worse for others, but it doesn't mean that it's different. It just, it, they, they, those commonalities are part of what has to be addressed. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Nagina. So before um, uh, I, I switch gear, uh, so taking one question from what, what you received from Facebook, uh, there was a question, is a report available with the findings from the Iraq conflict uh, and stabilization monitoring framework? Um, so I'll answer that question, uh, Osama, and because I, I would like to go back to, with you to the data. Uh, as Nagina mentioned, uh, the, uh, the data is available uh, on the USIP website, uh, the, the round one, two, three, actually all four rounds, the raw data is available on the website, uh, so people can draw their own analysis from it. Uh, second, uh, for uh, there is a uh, re report. Uh, on rounds one, two, and three. Um, and uh, there is an interactive dashboard for round four that you can uh, work with on the website. And there are 
multiple pieces uh, for round four that draw were, touches on the issue of um, uh, Sinjar and the issues of um, uh, uh, decentralization that you can find on the USIP uh, website. Uh, those are uh, available. And if you have other specific questions, there's an email on the website that you feel free to reach out to us and ask us questions that, uh, that you may have. Uh, so with that, Osama, let me, uh, when we, I think we've taken good stock of where is the situation now, what are the, the challenges, and some of the actors involved in this work, some of the initiatives done. I'd like to switch gear and look at uh, moving forward. Uh, we spoke about that this is an election year, a big election year, an important um, uh, uh, event for Iraq. Um, what does the data tell us about political representation and governance? You started, uh, uh, you shared, said a little bit of that, uh, but specifically, what does the CSMF highlight in terms of expectations from the government, the international uh, uh, actors, um, uh, and uh, in particular, actually, the elections? What, 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 do we, what does the data tell us about the upcoming elections, where, how people view it, what does it say? Yeah, thanks, Arhong. Um, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of uh, really uh, fascinating data and across the four uh, ways, but in particular around four, because we do ask specifically about uh, elections in wave four, um, and we'll continue to do so in wave five and wave six, the next two, uh, two rounds. Um, so starting with the elections first, uh, there's not a lot of faith in elections as a driver of positive change in the three districts looked at. Um, and this, this was true regardless of um, ethno-religious uh, 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 identity. So um, elections aren't seen as uh, being a driver of positive change. Now, this shouldn't really come as a surprise, um, especially when you look at other data uh, from the CSMF related to how communities view uh, political, um, political actors, governing actors, and, and political institutions. So on this, there's a general dissatisfaction with governing actors, with political uh, leaders. Um, and there's a view that political actors and parties have negative and undue influence on local administration. And I'll come back to this point in a little bit. Um, and that political parties and leaders use identity uh, uh, division uh, to mobilize support. So they, they use uh, sectarian narratives to, to mobilize political support. And that these actors are not working in the best interests of the communities. Um, but are, are rather driven by uh, personal benefit. So um, uh, going back to the local administration uh, part, um, in the three districts, the local administration, uh, so it would be the, the whenever there was a, a municipal uh, administrative um, uh, council before it was, uh, they were dissolved, uh, the local administration was viewed more positively than provincial and central level uh, actors. Um, and the re the, it's easy to see why, because that is the, the closest touch point with the communities. Those in the district council and the, and the mayor um, are, uh, are from the communities. There's, uh, uh, um, when the district councils were functional, there was more inclusion of all the various um, uh, uh, components within the council. So there's more, they're more positive to the local administration. And the data from CSMF um, takes that a step forward and shows that communities want there to be more decentralization to that level. 
Um, so that's a very important point. So there's a, uh, the data shows that there's a general a mistrust towards central level and provincial level actors, but there's more trust in district level um, actors. Um, so these views have impacted, uh, you know, they have impacted how uh, elections are seen to uh, induce positive or negative change, um, but they've also done something else. Um, they've also impacted um, how uh, political, how, how uh, communities view political representation and civil leadership um, and how that can be, how those can be used as a means for advancing political interests. Um, and so when I meet one question that we asked in particular, and using the example from Sinjar, uh, amongst uh, all communities, the, the Yazidi community and um, uh, uh, others, the, the Sunni Arab community, the Kurdish communities, um, we, the, the majority of residents in the district cite international backing, financial resources, and an armed group as the top three ways to advance political interests. So not uh, free and fair elections or the ability to contest uh, the electoral uh, elections or the political space uh, because uh, they're not seen as, uh, elections are not seen as, a, as a, a driver of positive change, but rather these, uh, these things, uh, international backing, having financial resources and an armed group are seen as the best way for these groups to advance their political interests which is uh, disconcerting. Um, and then uh, ending on a positive note, from round one to round uh, three, um, there, was, uh, so there was particularly from the Yazidi community and the, the Christian community, there was more of a, um, a, a tendency to look inward. Um, and so there was, there, I don't want to say they were more sectarian, uh, but it was there. These communities wanted there to uh, wanted there to be political representation tied to ethnic uh, religious identity. In round four, that has changed. Uh, the Christian community and the Yazidi communities, amongst other communities, the Shabak, um, who already believe this, but there's a broad there's a belief a, a more a wider belief in broad based political parties and representation. So that's a positive uh, 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 trend from round one to round four, moving away from um, ethno religious identity as a marker for political affiliation to one uh, uh, looking and, and recognizing the benefits of broad based political representation. Thank you, Osama. Um, I'll, I'll probably come back to some of the, the issues you, me you mentioned, but let me go to Adad and, um, and hear from him. So Adad, how do you assess the upcoming elections? How do the minorities view the upcoming elections? Uh, what are their expectations? You're, uh, you're on mute, Adad. Uh, I apologize. Uh, thank you, Sarang. Really, uh, conducting the elections in any country in a democratic way is uh, a cause uh, for joy and the uh, peaceful transition of authority. Really, the Iraqi parliament uh, voted on the uh, elections law number nine of 2020, which guarantees the representation of the Yazidis, the Christians, and the Sab and Shabak and the Kandans uh, in parliament through the quota. But uh, 
the uh, drawback of this law is that it's made uh, the quota of the Christians and the Saudi uh, Iraq as one constituency, and all Iraqis have the right to vote in these elections and the representatives of uh, these uh, minorities, which uh, opened the door for the larger uh, uh, groups uh, to steal, and I stress the term, stealing the uh, quota uh, figures as what we saw in the previous elections by pumping a large amount of votes into the Christian uh, uh, parties supported by the larger parties and therefore confiscating the free will of these uh, groups uh, to choose their representatives uh, freely. And the fear this year is uh, that there will be a huge uh, conflict uh, between the larger uh, blocs, uh, specifically the Kurd and Shiites, uh, for these seats because the system of multiple constituencies makes each party and entity have uh, lost uh, votes in a certain constituency in Iraq uh, that cannot be benefited from, and therefore the, they will uh, guide these uh, um, uh, seats uh, and the votes. So there was serious efforts uh, to amend the law uh, by us with Parliament, but we failed and we did not receive assistance in our uh, uh, efforts uh, by anyone. Even the UN, represented by UNAMI, did not support us on the pretext that we don't need to divide Iraq more than it is currently uh, divided, noting that this experience that we uh, asked for, which is restricting uh, uh, voting to the minorities based on the ID, has been previously applied in Kurdistan in 1992 and was a success. And this applies to the quota of the Yazidis and the Shabak. Uh, but we are in need to change or amend this law to take into account the interests of the minorities and the true representation in Parliament, and knowing that uh, the rest of the minorities don't have uh, quota seats and cannot reach Parliament except through the larger lists and parties. So if the law does not meet Even your expectations and it is not possible to change at this stage, <clears throat> then what do you expect or hope the elections will achieve for the minorities? Anything positive to expect? Regarding the quota seats, uh, we have our expectations, which may be uh, true to an extent based on the outputs of the previous elections, which I referred to in my discussion. But I do hope that the government uh, forms as soon as possible, uh, uh, is formed after the elections and takes into account the representation of the minorities and to work on the amendment of the uh, uh, post, uh, in, uh, so the after the elections of 2020 to amend the law to give the exclusive rights uh, to uh, choose the representatives of the minorities by the minorities themselves. Thank you, Adel. So, Nadina, uh, coming to you, um, how do you view the upcoming national elections? Is DRL doing any work related to, to them? Um, uh, well, yeah, so let me leave it at that. Um, thanks, Sarhan. So, yes, um, Remember that DRL is democracy, human rights, and labor. So the elections are very much on our minds and have been. But I think that the important thing to bear in mind is that um, elections are only as good and only as credible as the people who participate in them. So that's where a good bit of our focus has been on the DRL side, is on participation, on, on getting out the vote, on, on hoping that in the work that we're doing, we're helping to establish the credibility of the elections, the, the fact that they, they are happening, 
um, exactly when, you know, October is the date right now, it, it has changed, but whenever they do happen, they require voters in order for them to have a chance. And I think the the most important part of that to keep in mind is they, elections are a step in a process. They're not the whole process themselves. So we need to start with first participation, active participation with the candidates to ensure that as they are, as they are seeking to, to take the trust from the communities that are voting for them, that they're hearing those communities and what they demand from their elected officials. Then the elections themselves, the votes, and then after the election, I think is, is where the most emphasis uh, will have to be and will continue to be because that's when the work begins. We can, you know, we will and we can contribute and are, are doing the work with our partners on, like I said, getting out the vote and on, um, on the assessment of the elections as they happen, on the transparency and the credibility of the process. But it's it's immediately after the elections where that's where you hold the former candidates, now elected officials, to their word, to the agreements that they made, to the commitments that they made in this process. And that that is constant and that has to be, um, we have to stay the course on that part of it and remain committed to it. Otherwise, the next question will be, okay, the next group of candidates and, and parties and representatives. And if we're not holding that second step of accountability on the governance process, then I can, I can see why there is um, some of this pessimism around elections, but it is, it's the first step. It's ensuring that getting people to vote and then when they vote, they're holding their elected officials accountable to what they've committed and promised to do during this period we're in right now. When they are doing that candidacy, when they are seeking those votes, um, and, and I think that's where you'll continue to see the work that we do even beyond October 10th. Um, October 11th is where I think the, the, the real hard part will begin. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Nagina. So a um, couple of things. Uh, I think uh, with, this is a good place where we're talking about representation and the performance of the governance and that we uh, uh, government. And we two components came up with the government, uh, and that includes the government of Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government, and then the international community. You've um, covered a good part of what uh, DRL has done, what the U.S. government has done. It was our hope that we would have another speaker that would speak more about uh, the, the international community, but unfortunately that did not work out. So hopefully there will be future conversations about that. And the, uh, the uh, we will get to talking about the government of Iraq and its responsibilities, what's doing, what are the expectations. Uh, but I also wanna, I'll say more at the end, we, are, we, have, we have planned another event next week where we will hear from two ministers uh, from the government of Iraq where we will go into matters of the government of Iraq even in more detail then. Uh, so again, I'll share more information um, at the end. Uh, then uh, to getting to the questions that we are receiving through the uh, uh, chat, uh, the Q&A box on the USIP live stream, please keep those questions coming. Um, uh, there are, uh, I, I wanna make sure that there are some questions related to 
what was the purpose of um, to, for the United States to go to Iraq and related questions. Um, if you forgive us uh, for not uh, getting to those questions here, and the reason is not important questions, uh, it's just the time we allocated the objectives to really focus on the issues of the Iraqi minorities. Uh, um, and uh, uh, our speakers, uh, uh, their functions and their responsibilities are not in a way that allows them to comment on some, some of those issues. Uh, so I hope that you forgive us for not uh, getting to those questions today in this platform, but uh, happy to do so in other platforms where we have speakers who can speak uh, to those uh, issues. Again, important issues that you are raising there. Uh, so coming to uh, another question that we have, um, commenting question that we have received um, is, and if I can bring something closer. So, uh, so the UN Declaration on Minorities, which sets forth the responsibility of the state to protect minorities, as well as the role of the international community when the state is unwilling or unable uh, to do so. Uh, in Iraq, are the government uh, governments of the Kurdistan region and uh, uh, the federal government in uh, Baghdad basically making progress in their efforts to advance rights, protection, and political um, participation for minorities. Um, what more is needed both from the Iraqi governments and the international community? Uh, I think these are uh, good concepts and questions to go and start with Adad uh, first uh, to see um, how would you answer those questions. Well, the truth is we still have hope, we'd not lose hope, and we know that the labor of the democratic process is very difficult, and uh, the minorities are the weaker uh, link in any change process, but we will uh, stay in our land and, and, and in our homeland, regardless of what happens. Now, we do not expect anything from the current government except keeping uh, their promises to support diversity and protect it. After the elections, we want or we expect the government to adopt policies and strategies that would um, prevent the loss of the threatened minorities and to maintain their presence in Iraq as part of the diverse community in Iraq. The international community has a responsibility. They have to support and develop the areas of the minorities, uh, impose pressure on the uh, Iraqi government to legislate laws that would protect minorities, prevent discrimination, and provide the necessary environment for political participation in all parts of the government. And uh, also, we need support to ensure that the areas of minorities are kept away from international conflicts that are happening on the land of Iraq. As for political representations, I have mentioned or I have spoken about the uh, political uh, representation in uh, the region of Kurdistan. Uh, I think that that is representation is the same in the federal government and in the uh, KRG because mainly it is com uh, it consists of the major lists and uh, entities and there are votes they win votes from outside uh, of these entities to the lists and to and to recruit parliament members that would support the formation of the government this is what happened in 2018 and this is what also what will happen in 2020. Thank you. So, uh, coming to you, Osama, in, in the same lane, um, 
You've been working on these issues uh, on the ground for for a while. Um, um, do you, how do you see um, the minority's view changing uh, uh, about uh, the performance of the government of Iraq uh, and the KRG? Do you see a change there? And if yes, in what way? Yeah, thanks, Farhang. Um, so starting off with the data, um, I think we, for the, the fourth round, there was a change. So while the central government, we asked questions about perceptions towards the central government, provincial government, local local government. Um, while perceptions for the central government still weren't good, uh, they increased among some communities, minority communities, because of more engagement from uh, the, the prime minister and, and uh, the, the new administration that came in, uh, visits, uh, more engagement, um, uh, um, more uh, discussion about those issues. There was an initial, uh, from, from the data, there was a bump uh, uh, in perception that, okay, there, you know, uh, there's more acknowledgement from the central government on our issues. Now, whether or not that translates into um, the, the outcomes that these communities want to see, that's another story. And I think that points to um, I think the, the larger difficulty, so if we look at legislative reform and even the electoral law uh, that um, uh, Adad, uh, our colleague, mentioned, the new electoral law was in response to the um, the, the, the protest movement in 2019, right? So the, the new electoral law was created instead of one uh, electorate um, on a government level, creating 83 or 86 electoral districts that was meant to strengthen accountability um, within those districts. So they would tie uh, ministers in parliament to a, uh, a smaller defined, more narrowly defined electorate. Now, the issue there is um, other things, other re other reforms didn't happen. So um, in areas where there are uh, minority groups, um, those groups become beholden, as I mentioned earlier, the view is that they've lost political agency to larger political parties in those areas. So even though they're voting, uh, larger political actors still have the the, elect, the, the electoral um, apparatus to win votes and not really um, uh, allow for local agency amongst these communities to, to come up. Well, on, on the legislative side, if we're looking at the, the um, things around reparations, compensation, there have been legislative gains over the years to respond to uh, uh, grievances, not just amongst minority communities, but all communities victimized. But in particular, if we're looking at minority communities, the latest that was passed was the, the Yazidi Female Survivors Law, which uh, looks at the Yazidi community, but also other minority groups that have been victimized uh, by, by ISIS. Um, I think the problem in the compensation uh, mechanism in Iraq is a good example. Uh, a lot of legislative reform has happened to make that compensation mechanism uh, more inclusive and on paper responsive, but the barrier has been on an operational level. How do, how do actually implement those laws? That's where we're seeing there being a disconnect and not really meeting the, um, the, the needs of, of the community. So it's, there might be uh, um, legislative or, or some structural reform happening, but that structural reform hasn't manifested in, on, a, on an operational level. Thank you, Osama. So, Nagina, um, coming back to you uh, with a twofold uh, question. One is that uh, COVID added more burden uh, on foreign assistance. Um, uh, and uh, which was already facing many competing priorities. Uh, the upcoming elections 
are also taking some focus uh, and some programming is going in that direction. Um, so while there's more demand from the minority communities for more help from the international community, so there's one challenge there in terms of how do you um, uh, uh, basically prioritize and how, how, how do you go about this, uh, this. The second aspect is more practical um, on the operating, envi the operating environment has been changing in Iraq. Uh, not just threats from ISIS, but also U.S.-Iran tensions, attacks on uh, diplomatic facilities, killing of civil society leaders. Um, how has uh, DRL responded or adjusted uh, its programming in this changing operating environment? Uh, those are great questions, Sarhang. Um, I think that I think that the <laughs> The specifics of the environment and how how you describe them are have evolved and I think have magnified over the past couple of years. But a lot of this um, has been present and has been part of the operating environment in which we've been working for some time. Um, we have had, obviously, with the exception of COVID, but obviously these these tensions that exist, um, they have been more pronounced recently, but they have always existed. Um, the, the inability to travel and to be, um, to be able to freely move around the country, particularly for us who are not Iraqi, um, that has always been challenging, you know, with COVID and with the current security and environment, even more so. Because of that, I think the reason why we're able to support the majority of our work is we undertake it through our partners who are inside Iraq. Uh, the organizations, the leadership, these are generally Iraqi-led, um, partially because that is how you actually achieve success for some of these goals, right? It's not by transplanting another model of what is important and what is needed. Uh, what might work, it's listening to the people who it will most greatly impact and saying, what, how do you think we can make this work? And because of that, it's not, it's not the traditional type of foreign assistance we would like to, we would like you to do this. It's much more, you have identified these issues, how can we support progress toward those, uh, where they align very much with our priorities and our hopes for some of these issues. I, I really don't want to get too much into the details of the type of partnerships and, and organizations with which we work because of that security component. Um, but I will say that we, we have been able to consistently program and support efforts of our partners uh, without a break since since I started working on this file in um, through DRL in 2012. And that's that's because our model and our framework is based on that the organizations that are already there and already doing the work, it's where they will allow us to partner and support them on that work that that is the change that, that we've taken on. Um, the question of COVID is uh, is actually a question and an answer in itself. Um, COVID has made it much more difficult to do some of the traditional 
you know, larger gatherings and, and, and meetings that you really do need to have in person. But what it's also done is it's, it's brought quite to the forefront and to the light a lot of these vulnerabilities that, again, have existed, but people have not really paid a lot of attention to. You asked at the beginning about how some of these issues have, have per perhaps disproportionately or in some way affected or the response of women um, in, in these situations. COVID, and this is not specific to Iraq, but globally we have seen that one of the first order effects of COVID has been on women, on their ability to participate in public life, on rising rates of gender-based violence, because with, with that added instability at such a colossal social scale, with the economic instability that comes with it, the lack of ability to move, we're seeing that the first step was that women uh, retreated in many cases from public life, which in you know a two-parent household with a very strong income from the one of the partners is difficult but manageable. We have such a high number of single female-headed households in Iraq. Again, this is from generations and iterations of the conflict. You have women who their entire work is not something that you can do remotely in teleworking. Their livelihoods are based on working in other people's homes, in, in sales, in, uh, in factories, in handicrafts. Again, this is across the region, not specific to Iraq and, and globally, I would say. Um, so what, what we are going to now see COVID really bringing to light is that retreat in many cases of women from public life and what that has meant more broadly for society and progress. That's going to be another question that the impacts of that, I, I will be very interested to see how it's teased out in future uh, analysis under the CSMF. But more broadly, these are questions that we, we struggle with and work with across the board. It impacts, it impacts every lens through which we view um, all of these questions. And I, I think the, the, the lessons we will learn from that vulnerability of, of women and then add every other layer of vulnerability that comes with ethnicity, religious background, conflict environment only compounds all of those issues. So that will be something that we will continue to try to address and we will con continue to try to support uh, because the, it's not a question, it's, it's, a, it's a requirement that we all stay very focused on that as well. Thank you, Nagina. So we are about uh, 13 minutes out from the uh, end of uh, our uh, discussion. Uh, so for the rest, we still have a good number of questions and comments that come through the, uh, on the USIP website, through the Q&A box and through the, um, uh, uh, Facebook and other questions that we have received before. So I, for, for going forward, I, I, I appreciate the shorter answers so that we can get to as many of those questions as possible. Uh, this is not to suggest that the previous answers were long. It's just since we have a good number of issues, I would like to take, uh, I can take short comments so that we address them. Uh, so a question that has come in, um, uh, it uh, relates to uh, basically um, reconciliation uh, and uh, says, how are the various communities um, define their need for reconciliation? Is it driven by revenge, justice, accountability, economic empowerment? Uh, how can reconciliation address uh, their sense of loss? Uh, I think Osama uh, in, uh, earlier on uh, touched on those issues uh, to a certain degree and answered those. 
if I may uh, go to Adad, uh, add a uh, a an angle to this, um, especially on the issue of revenge and accountability piece. I mean, in Iraq, uh, it has been for a while, but especially these days, uh, the return of Iraqis from Al-Hol camp uh, in Syria is in uh, very much in the news. There is a debate, there is a challenge about uh, what to do with uh, about 30,000 Iraqis uh, there. Um, uh, about 100 or so uh, of, of people in the camp have been returned to Iraq, uh, to Ninoa in a camp there. And as, again, we'll have more discussion with the government of Iraq next week. But from the perspective of the Iraqi minorities, um, uh, Adad, how do they view uh, the return of, uh, of, the, uh, of families uh, from Al-Hol, even though uh, the UN and others are stressing that this is, uh, these are not ISIS families, there are people who are there who escaped the conflict, they are here on, back on a humanitarian basis, the need. Uh, how do the communities view uh, these returns and this issue? Well, the minorities or the components in general, especially those who have been affected by ISIS, they were hoping for positive steps towards implement, implementing transitional justice for the crimes of ISIS. But the problem in Iraq is that the uh, file of transitional justice uh, for the file of the Saddam's regime has not been closed yet, yet and there are no actual uh, measures on the ground, special trials and uh, the memorialization. memorization. This does not happen, especially, uh, except for what is happening in Sinjar. There are, there, are, uh, um, there are some events being held for the victims, for the Yazidi female victims. Many of the minorities and components were not compensated for the homes they've lost and the lives they, uh, they lost. Therefore, the return of the ISIS families, although we know that they are families that need human care and they have a lot of needs in order to ensure dignified life, but I would like to um, I would like to say that the minorities are not happy with that, especially the Yazidi minority, and especially that Iraq did not take any special measures to compensate the families of the victims and to ensure justice, to give them back their lands and to uh, uh, close the refugee and displacement camps. If they, had these measures been taken, there would have been room for reconciliation uh, and there would have been understanding for the return of these families, but now there is general dissatisfaction. Thank you, Adad. Um, so, Osama, uh, one of the comments um, uh, uh, on, on that, that we received online and uh, I would like to probably try to take that conversation to Sinjar and the Sinjar agreement. Uh, so the comment basically says, many of the issues discussed are uh, consistently repeating themselves in new forms and with new militant groups filling the vacuum created by the previous conflict. In my opinion, a fundamental reshaping of Iraq on all fronts has to take place before Iraq can um, start making progress and true peace building can take place after establishing peace. Any attempt before that uh, will only be temporary. Uh, I, I think a great uh, comment. 
if I, we take a look at Sinjar and the Sinjar agreement, a, a very complicated case um, in Iraq where you have not the issues of disputed territories, displacement and ISIS, but also the geopolitical uh, dynamics of Turkey and Iran and Syria and border is just mixed in one place. Uh, to have a breakthrough there, um, uh, the, the, there, there's the Sinjar agreement between uh, the government of Iraq and the um, uh, um, uh, Kurdistan regional government. Can you speak uh, to that issue? You've written about this issue. Uh, if we are if we are to have a breakthrough in Sinjar, what are some of the issues that the agreement is trying to uh, set the foundation for, and what how is that uh, working there? And again, given the short amount of time, I, I I can take a short answer there. Great, yeah. So I think the the Sinjar agreement um, um, does three things. It does, the Sinjar Agreement is meant to streamline uh, security in the district by calling for all uh, forces that are not um, local police and uh, federal intelligence uh, uh, to leave. So that would mean PKK, YBS, the PMF, um, other uh, other uh, uh, groups to, to leave the district and for security be sole responsibility of the local police and uh, GEO Otherwise, uh, the federal government's uh, uh, security um, intelligence. And then it also wants to get rid of the dual administration. So there's an official administration outside the district, uh, more oriented towards the, the KRG. And there's the unofficial administration that was set up um, in 2017 um, that uh, has political power, but not formal authority. So it tries to get rid of those by calling for um, the establishment of the unified administration. Um, what the agreement, the third thing it does, it calls for investment to create a, a committee to get investment to uh, respond to a lot of the, the grievances around development or lack of development. But the, the issue is that the, this is very much a political agreement between the, the federal government and the Kurdistan regional government, and that it um, uh, ignores in many ways the, the community uh, views of what they want and what, uh, what other grievances they have. So when it comes to security, um, it's viewed as a really good first step, um, but there's a call to include uh, more people in the local police force. So uh, that, that would make up, uh, that would be comprised of all segments. So there's a view that YBS uh, fighters uh, should not necessarily be integrated by, uh, by some. Um, but there's a segment of the Yazidi community that says these, um, and from the, the, the federal government's level saying, uh, these are Iraqi citizens. They're the, it's a political stream that they're a part of. Uh, they've done nothing wrong. They can be integrated. But uh, there's a, it's politically sensitive because of the larger geopolitical dynamics that, that, you, that you mentioned. So um, put simply, the agreement is a good first step, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the needs or desires of the communities in, in, in Sinjar. And that um, has been uh, those communities that made themselves uh, um, heard on, on those issues. Thank you, Osama. Uh, so uh, probably the last intervention, uh, uh, Nagina, the, there's a question uh, says that how does DRL policy in Iraq take into account the diverse needs and opinions of each minority group, uh, which, um, which, which, which vary by district? Uh, that's an excellent question, and I, I will answer honestly. It's not possible to take into account the every single 
individual entity and group. Um, and for that reason, we partner with groups like the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities, so that we have partners that are, are doing some of the work of coalescing those, um, those individual perceptions and needs and helping us to distill where we can support, where we need to be highlighting, where we need to be um, addressing our work and our engagement. Um, I think I, if I can, and apologies, this might be a bit of a longer answer, um, I think many years ago, Sarhang, you, you may remember, we um, we tried to figure out a way to do a, a broad minorities block in the parliament and have a, and tried to support a broader minorities parliamentary block. And it doesn't work because those different perspectives um, really want to be heard and really want to have their individual experience addressed. Um, but there is there is power and impact in in pulling out from those individual experiences common issues and if we can start there and again working in partnership with some of these entities that are already doing this and and amplifying the voices of their communities if we can start with some of those common issues that are affecting all of the different minority groups and then from that pulling down to the individual groups and the their specific needs then i think we can make a great deal more progress than if we overwhelm ourselves with each uh, individual experience to to a point where um we would we would in a sense be contributing to this idea that there is no commonality and possibility for reconciliation for some of the atrocities that have been committed very broadly. Um, I, I hope that I've been consistent in being able to convey that um, though some of these issues are not new, they, they have gotten worse. And I think going back to Sarhang's earlier question on, on how we can prioritize, it's pulling from those issues where it has been worse and, and can be addressed in the immediate term. And that part of that will bring us to improving the situation for more of the whole and the collective. And that's honestly the only way that we'll be able to make and keep progress. So parts of that and pieces of that can be reflected in things like um, what Osama noted, the, the Yazidi survivor's law. But again, note that that was a, a law for one, one particular group uh, initially, but because of the work of, of many of these communities, it was expanded to include the specific um, experiences of the other uh, survivors of these atrocities. So it's it's always part of each conversation to hear where we can potentially make the most progress as well as not bog ourselves down by being too, um, too uh, shifting our priorities too much without completing one step of it. Thank you, Nagina. Unfortunately, we have still a good number of good questions and comments that we have not been able to get to, but I think this has been a rich um, discussion already. We've come to the end of our time. Um, in closing, it is clear uh, that progress has been made in the recovery of Iraq's minority communities uh, from the conflict with ISIS um, in, in a good number of areas that you spoke with. However, uh, the work is not done, with many people still displaced, uh, people lacking services and, secu and security, um, economic opportunity, and uh, concerns about political participation, 
Um, many of these, as uh, said by our um, speakers, existed before ISIS and have worsened uh, in some ways after it, uh, including geopolitical uh, competition uh, on Iraqi soil and in areas where the ethnic uh, uh, and religious minorities live. So the work is clearly not, not done. On June 23rd, uh, we will have the opportunity to engage Iraq's uh, Minister of Planning and Minister of Migration and Displacement on how the government of Iraq has responded to the needs of the minorities and what to expect next, but also the broader issue of uh, ISIS and the returnees from Al-Hol and this, uh, the closure of the camps. So please join us next Wednesday, June 23rd at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time in the United States, 5.30 uh, p.m. Uh, Iraq time. Um, uh, that will be a good discussion, uh, I'm sure. Uh, with that, thanks to our participants, uh, Nagina, Adad, Osama, for joining us today and sharing your insights on the current situation uh, of the ethnic and religious minorities and the path ahead uh, for them. And thanks for the State Department's um, uh, DRL Bureau and Alliance of Iraqi Minorities for your continued partnership. Uh, thank you all, uh, our audience, for tuning in. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.